By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sassen behind the scenes. This quote leads us perfectly in our guest today, Danny Foley, who is a co-founder of Rude Rock Strength and a head strength coach at Virginia High Performance, where he specializes in working with U.S. Special Operation Command personnel and tactical athletes. I first found Danny when I read one of his articles on offset training and instantly knew we had very similar thoughts on how to train an athlete. Today, we had a great conversation about oblique slings, the importance of the foot and hips, and overall mindset on eliminating safety nets and how to push forward in life. This is probably one of my favorite conversations I've had so far, and I hope you guys get a lot out of this conversation. Thank you for listening. Danny, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got kind of into the world of sports performance and other passions and facts about you? Yeah, man. So uh, I'm uh, the head strength coach at Virginia High Performance. Uh, we're located in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, coming up on my fifth year now. And we work predominantly with a tactical population, most of those being special forces, spec ops. The only reason I mention that even is just to kind of provide some context on where I'm coming from with, you know, some of my training philosophies and uh, some of the applications and whatnot. But, uh, you know, it's a great group to work with. Really, the uh, the challenging aspect of it has just been to better understand the injuries and, and kind of how to get them from that injured state to a less injured state. On top of that, man, uh, my wife and I, Nicole, uh, we've started up our own little personal professional site, uh, Rude Rock Strength and Conditioning, about a year ago, uh, which is uh, exclusively a remote thing or an online thing. And uh, we've been doing pretty well with that, you know, working with, uh, people from all over the, the country and, and really interact actually all over the world, really, you know, and, uh, just kind of getting our content out there, articles and eBooks and stuff like that and doing some remote coaching through there. Yeah. Prior to, to VHP, you know, I kind of took the, the traditional path, uh, did my undergrad, my master's at old dominion, um, and then kind of got into personal training to start, uh, worked at a couple of commercial gyms and a couple of private sector gyms as a personal trainer. And, uh, one thing led to another and it kind of found me at BHP. So what, uh, when you were in school, what made you really want to go into the private sector over the collegiate sector? You know, honestly, man, uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, (laughs) I I really, really didn't. I originally went to Virginia Wesleyan college, a small D three school here in Virginia beach, uh, to play basketball. And when I showed up there to play basketball, I was pretty much like, yeah, this, this isn't going to work for school purposes. Uh, you know, and man, I take my hat off to all those D3, D2 athletes because you really, you really make a sacrifice, you know, for your sport being there sometimes. But uh, for me, it just didn't work out. Uh, and for the first time in my life, I put academics over athletics and jump ship over to ODU. But I struggled mightily through my undergrad. And it was, uh, it was really just a, I was really good at weightlifting. And when I was playing basketball still, the, the strength coach there took an interest in me. He was like, hey, man, I know so and so over at ODU. You should, tap into this and, and kind of get into this exercise science thing. I was like, all right, cool. I like to lift. So early on, I didn't have a clue. Uh, I was just kind of feeling my way out and, and moving along. And then I uh, met my wife in 2014 and uh, she really put a lot of things in motion for me, man. She really helped me to kind of get back into school and finish out some stuff that I had left over and then got me into a master's program. And uh, that was when I kind of started to figure things out and ended up, uh, I actually just reached out to uh, VHP via email and uh, wasn't happy with where I was at the time and, and you know, figured I wanted a little more and just sent an email like, hey, I love what you guys do. If you have any openings coming up, please let me know. 
And uh, they basically just shot me back an email and said, uh, you know, we can't promise anything. We don't have anything guaranteed, you know, but you're more than welcome to come here and be a fly on the wall. And once I got that green light, I knew I was just going to pester them until they didn't let me <laughs> out. And then that's when things tr- started to shape form. So, uh, yeah, man, we, uh, worked with, uh, we started out working with like aspiring college athletes and, and team sports and club sports and everything. And then pretty much kind of overnight just switched gears. And it was, you know, we had this, uh, this military program in place and it's been that ever since. Gotcha. What was that? Um, what was that switch like for you when, when you, when you made the switch from the athletes to, to the military side? Uh, it was a little bit unnerving at first. And, uh, the, the, the owner of our gym is a, is a long time, you know, uh, military member himself, veteran. And, um, you know, so I knew that there was a, a patriotic and a tactical presence at VHP, but at the time I was, I was hell bent on, you know, I'm going to work with athletes because that's what I want to work with. So yeah, the way it ended up working out, it was really good that I didn't know what I was getting into beforehand because it didn't give me a chance to have any kind of preconceived notions or expectations for anything. And when, you know, when the transition kind of occurred, it was just like, all right, I'm just going to work, you know, and now I'm just working with this population. So I think it really worked well for me that way. So the population that you're working with, are they active military members or are they people coming off? So we actually work with both. We have an active duty and a veteran, uh, but, um, it's all, I'm really, really fortunate, man. We, we, uh, you know, I can't, I can't share too, too much about the, the ins and outs of the program, but, uh, the gist of it is, is it's a concentrated program and it's basically a micro dose. So we're getting, you know, guys and girls for about four to six weeks and it's not only training, but we have a host of external modalities. You know, they're getting diagnostic reports from various modalities. Um, and you know, there's a nutrition plan in place. So I'm getting literally the optimal situation to work with athletes where everything is accounted for, everything is controlled. And they're, you know, with this tactical population, man, it's so easy. They're just so driven. They're so ambitious and they're really interested in what you're doing. They ask great questions. So for me, man, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's as easy as could be. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I want to bring it back a little bit to that, that first day when you, you showed up and you were a fly on the wall at this uh, new performance center. Can you kind of describe what that was like? And then the, the process of the pestering, how, how did that work? Yeah. So it was funny, man. And, uh, honestly, I didn't really realize the, the risk that I was taking at the time, but, um, this was, uh, early 2016 and I was set to get married in October of 2016. We were broke as hell and we were both pretty unhappy with where we were with work and, and just not having enough. And, uh, I remember coming home one day, I was driving down to shadow like three days a week. And I came home one night and it just kind of hit me. I was like, this is it. This is, this is where I want to be. So I remember having a conversation with my wife and I was like, Hey, listen, you just got to trust me on this, but I'm going to quit my job tomorrow. I'm not going to get paid for a little while. I promise you this will work out. And so I ended up doing like a three month internship unpaid. Uh, and I was getting married in like six months and, uh, you know, it just, it ended up working out for me, but it was a little bit, it was a little sketchy at the time. I think my biggest thing mentally was I have to do everything that I can to show them not only that I have value and contribution to what they're doing, but that that they're not going to be able to find better if they went out to look. So as egotistical as that may seem, uh, I just took myself very, very seriously. And I made sure I was doing things, uh, you know, with thoughtfulness and, and being thorough. So uh, the one like kind of lasting joke on it is, um, you know, I was so concentrated on this method and this application and demonstrating knowledge and all that stuff. But come to find out what ended up uh, sticking out about me was that I moved the plyo boxes when I vacuumed. 
And that was kind of the determining factor for me to get hired, believe it or not. That's awesome that they, they noticed the, the small things. I think that's something uh, that, that I have chills from that story a little bit. The, uh, oh, man. The, the, the culture, that's something that's really cool because that's not just on your end of moving those things and doing the small thing, but that's where, you know, you have a good culture at that place to where they are noticing those small things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, the, the great, I'm glad you mentioned that the greatest thing about it is everything with, with that kind of stuff is, is done with reciprocity. You know, I've walked in so many times and seen the owner of the business, you know, scrubbing down toilets and moving equipment around and, and keeping things clean. And, you know, nobody's better than the position that they're in. Right. So, uh, we all do our part and they set such a tremendous example for us to work off of. I love that. Another thing that I want to kind of bring it back to, and we, we mentioned this a lot on our podcast and just how to live life is eliminating that safety net. Something yeah. that I think a lot of, holds a lot of people back. And this is something I think allowed you to excel. You talked about how it was sketchy for you, but if that safety net had been there and it is for a lot of people, then maybe you, you, you wouldn't fully commit. You wouldn't have that step above that competition. You wouldn't be able to prove that if they go out somewhere, they're going to get somebody better because that person that they're going to get probably has that safety net already. And they're not reaching as hard as you are. So I think that's something that is really important to emphasize there. A hundred percent. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've got something taped up to my uh, bathroom mirror. That's just a little post-it note that says over caution is the language of the poor. <laughs> it's uh, you really can't, you can't hedge your bet and expect to win big. Where did that mindset come from? Did you, were you always a risk taker in eliminating that safety net? Were you always confident in that? Or was it just, I'm not happy. I have to do this. Well, it's, it's a kind of a two part answer there. One, uh, I was a dumbass for a long time and, and made a lot of really poor decisions. So I think one of the best things that I did was get all that out of my system. By the time I was 25, you know, just getting through those bad decisions, but more importantly, understanding the consequences of those decisions. Um, you know, that really helped me to understand like everything matters. You have to take things seriously and you have to really do everything for yourself at the end of the day. Um, you know, so that was part, the first part of it. And then the second part of it was, and I don't mean to sound egotistical when I say this, but you start to understand that people aren't as great as they seem, you know? And so you, the more you experience and the more that you interact with people at conferences or you cross-reference with other coaches and, you know, you see people get presentations and you start to get to a point where you're like, man, you know that I can do that. And, and once you kind of get that in front of you, then it's just a confidence thing. And I certainly have never had a shortage of that, but you know, you just have to be extremely confident in what you're doing and then do all the work behind it to back that confidence. I, I love that point. I have been talking to a lot of people recently about that is the podcasts and conferences that I've been going to. And again, I don't think it's an ego thing at all, but meeting almost your, your, your superhero, you, you meet this person you've been looking up to for the long time and you talk to them and you realize they're human. Uh, and this is, uh, I listened to a Joe Rogan podcast yesterday and he was talking about the same thing. He's like every single person on this planet is, is a human. And you have to realize that because otherwise you get stuck in the mindset of you can never do that. You can never reach that point. You can never, you can never get to that mountaintop because that person's special. But when you, when you break it down and you start to meet these super successful people, you start to realize they probably started where you started. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, right on cue with that, uh, something I have in my office at work is a little blog script from, uh, Eric Cressy, who is right on cue with that, you know, he, he, him and Mike Boyle and, uh, DeFranco and all those guys that I consider to be like kind of my pillars for 
learning the uh, nuances of strength and conditioning, you know, I have a little excerpt from a blog that he was writing from when he was like 28, 27. And uh, he was talking about how it was a Friday night at 1030, you know, and he was sitting down writing, writing his articles and, and doing his content for his website, you know, and to me, that's just very normal behavior, right? I'm, I'm, my rule of thumb is plus 90. So I work every day from 5am to 6pm or 5am to 5pm. I come home, I take an hour off. And then I go back into the office for another 90 minutes, right? And some days it's extremely productive and I do great work. And then other days I just kind of sit here and bullshit and pretend that I'm doing work, but I'm going to get my 90 minutes in. And it was that thing from Cressy that really kind of, uh, you know, really reinforced that for me because I always have been very driven and, and kind of an autonomous person to begin with. But, you know, seeing somebody who I've listened to, listened to them speak in person countless times and everything is just mind blowing to me. I'm like, you know, hey. He didn't just wake up one day and know everything there is to know about scapular mechanics, right? He's sitting down at 1030 on a Friday after an 80 hour week and he's still getting at it. That's what you got to do. Uh, I love that point. The, the plus nine. So the, the more I interview successful people, the more I interview coaches that I look up to, the more I get the same answers of the consistent work and then the growth mindset of you have to be open. You have to be looking for new things. Plus 90, our, our, um, our company's mantra is keep chopping wood. Uh, so. And that, yeah. that's what we continue to tell people is it, it's, it's not that huge change. It's that, it's that small thing you do repeatedly every single day that adds up. And again, that, that plus 90, even if you're not develop, developing the, the, the greatest new ebook, the, the, that hip ebook, you, you're just sitting there and continuing that constant work. All of that time adds up eventually to get you to where you want to go and you're moving forward. Absolutely. And that was the critical part for me because I'm I have a tendency of like perfectionism and, and extremism and stuff like that. Um, and it's really been, that's been a very challenging part for me is kind of working back from that. Like, dude, not everything needs to be perfect. Not everything needs to be done in, 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 in completion every time you sit down, but it's the ritual or the practicing of it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what else is going on. 90 minutes, you're going to sit down and, and do something, you know? So doing something, it's what is it? One is greater than zero is always a great quote to live by too, right? Like if you do something, it is better than nothing most of the time. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's more that mindset and consistent, uh, consistently making sure you do it. So then when you are in that flow state or you are ready. So one of our football coaches, uh, here, one of his biggest things is opportunity loss is never regained. So what I think one of that, that then I need minutes is doing, it's making sure you are ready for that opportunity when it presents itself and it won't present itself every single day. That, yeah. that big thing is not going to present itself. That flow state is not going to present itself, but you are, you are sure going to be ready when it does present itself. And I live by a similar one. Luck is where opportunity meets preparation. And I just focus on that preparation part. So I'm going to be ready to roll whenever the call comes, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, uh, I love that. So we kind of naturally got to this point and I think, I think we have very similar mindsets so we could geek out about this. Going into the, uh, climbing that mountain for you. And again, we covered it just a little bit, but kind of taking a deep dive there. As we mentioned before, we, we, you see these super successful people and people, people see you now in that state, uh, being that successful person, having this full-time coaching job, starting your business, going through these things. And they're like, I can't, I can't reach that point. I can't, I can't know that much about the hip. I can't do all these things. And a lot of times it gets people stuck in that mindset of either that person was born special or that person got lucky. And one of my things I try to do is 
show that that's not the case that again, you, you have that plus 90 mindset, but can you just describe people describe to people a little bit that that mountain that you had to climb to get to where you're at and some of the failures that you had to face through there? Sure, man. Uh, so I don't want to sound cliche in saying this, but I, I think I'm very much still climbing that mountain. Um, you know, in a relative sense, uh, I, I've definitely covered a lot of ground in the last couple of years, but, um, trying to keep this as concise and clear as I can. Uh, you know, I was kicked out of school in my undergrad. Uh, I had accumulated over 140 credits, but was not eligible to graduate because I still had two chemistries left plus a couple other classes that were mandatory for me to graduate. Um, you know, I was like $110,000 in the hole on student loan debt. And, uh, I had, I was kicked out for, uh, academic ineligibility. So I was at like a one eight GPA or something like that. And, uh, you know, I kind of was a, uh, most of my problems were certainly self-infused, you know, so there's, there's no, nobody to look at, but me, but, um, once I kind of got through the deepest part of the shit there, uh, I turned a corner in 2013 and, uh, that was when I, I applied to 44 places. I, I will always remember that number. And I got a call back from two places and I'm talking like Best Buy, Radio Shack. I got two calls back and one of them was One Life and one of them was some private yoga studio to do something or other. And, uh, I ended up getting the job at One Life, no certification and didn't have a car to get to the interview. I had to have somebody take me there. And I came home and I was so excited about actually having a job. I had just gotten evicted from an apartment. I was like, all right, at least we can, you know, rebuild from here. And I remember being excited for a real short period of time and then just being extremely embarrassed after. And I was just kind of sitting there with myself and, and my dog. And, uh, I was like, look, man, I don't really know how we fell this quick or how we got to where we are this, this rapidly, but, um, you're going to do in 10 years what it takes most. 25 to achieve. And I had nothing to base that on. I had nothing to really, I really had no resources or anything to kind of build from, but I just latched onto that idea that in 10 years, I was going to do what it takes most 25 to do. And I kind of just put blinders on, man. I, I ruined a lot of friendships. I ruined a lot of relationships. It did not come without a cost, uh, but it was what I wanted to do. So I got very comfortable being isolated and I just got very comfortable, um, you know, really investing all of my free time into all this stuff. So, uh, to fast track through the rest of that things kind of like picked up from there. And again, my wife was such a fundamental, uh, help for me to kind of just be a better person and get my, get my shit together. But, um, you know, I think once I got to VHP, that was when I first felt like I was settled and I was like, okay, I'm going to be here. I have consistency. I have something I can rely on. Now let's invest in this. And then that was when I think things went from being just kind of like wildly energetic and just going and going and going to, okay, now we're going to start to refine the wheel a little bit. Now we're going to figure out, you know, how we're going to go about this, that, and the other. Um, but now moving forward, you know, the VHP is just where I'm at now. And, um, you know, the plan big picture is, uh, I'll be in, you know, working my way to the NFL. So now it's just taking everything that I'm doing at VHP and thinking about how that's going to be applicable for where I'm going to be in a couple of years and just trying to extract as much knowledge as I can from where I am now, being around a great staff and, and being around uh, a lot of great people, a lot of high achievers and just trying to take, take, take. That, that's awesome. I, I want to bring it back a little bit uh, to that, that day you woke up and you were embarrassed and you made the decision to 
make that change in your life. What, what were kind of the first steps in that? What, what's something that somebody that is in a similar situation right now that you could offer to them to make that next step for them? Yeah, man. Uh, you never have more to lose than you do gain. You always have more to gain than you have to lose. And I think that was, uh, taking the governor off for me. So at the time, uh, you know, I, I was, like I said, I, you know, just gotten evicted. So I didn't have a Wi-Fi. you know, I didn't have access to the internet. I didn't have, you know, any kind of money to do anything. I didn't have any friends or family in the area, but I had a pen and a notebook. Um, so I just started to profusely write and, you know, kind of everything from like, you know, introspective reflection to, you know, pseudo just kind of poetry type writing. And then that veered into more technical writing and all of the, the stuff that I'm doing now. But really, it was just honing in on what I had and what I had access to and utilizing that and really not thinking about anything else, not thinking about what I didn't have access to or what I couldn't do because it didn't matter. You control the controllables. Control the controllables. Absolutely. So going forward, when you, uh, we make that journey sound like you, you made the switch and then everything's just fine. Um, I'm assuming there was parts in there where you made the switch and you might've been like, is this the right step? Or maybe, maybe it doesn't feel like the momentum's building up as fast as I really want it. What were some of the things that you did mindset wise to push yourself through some of those barriers when you went through some of those tough times? Yeah. Um, I don't know that I ever thought about it much, to be honest with you. I just understood that, you know, it's not a linear path pretty early on. And, and I understood that there's going to be undulations to it. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. If I can kind of veer off of that a little bit, the difficult part for me was actually trying to figure out how to slow down and settle down and kind of, you know, focus in and, you know, in addition, being a good husband, being a good son and a brother and a friend and a person, you know, because it, it pisses a lot of people off when you really just cut everything off for yourself and just focus on you. So really the difficult part was repairing a lot of damaged relationships, improving my, you know, receptiveness to communication and, you know, talking more with people out of genuine interest and less out of need. Um, and just kind of, you know, trying to figure out who I was as a person unless as a coach, that was really the challenging aspect for me. And, um, you know, the, the getting punched in the face and, you know, getting kicked when you're down, no matter what point of life you're in or or where you are or what you do, that's just going to happen. You're just going to get, you're going to get run over sometimes. Um, but you just got to take it in stride, man. It's, it's not, it's not anything that you've done a lot of the times and it's usually never anything that's permanent, right? You can usually influence it. And as long as I can influence it, I have no problem with it. Oh, I love that. I, I, I might take this a little bit different of a route that I've taken it before. Uh, and this is more selfishly, but you talked about how you had to cut everything off to push yourself forward and go forward. Uh, I had a very similar experience in college where I was doing that with my sports. So trying to cut all the distractions, cut all the people. And like you said, when you do that, you become super successful or you start to make the journey, you start to grow that momentum and you come super specific in what you want to do and going forward in that realm. What I struggle with, with my athletes is I see somebody that has that. Um, I talk about it with a lot of people on the podcast, but the, those inner demons that are pushing them towards that. Uh, one of the quotes that I love is super successful. People are running from something as fast as they're running to something, but how as coaches, can we get an athlete that is that driven and they have that focus to 
realize there's also time to open up and become a better person without losing that little bit of an edge that they feel like they have. Yeah. So I think that, uh, one thing that helped me a lot with that is, uh, that, that quote, uh, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything, right? Of course there are limitations to that when you take it too literally. But, um, you know, I've had a couple of athletes where I've kind of put the onus on them. Like, you know, they bring up something like a a relationship issue or a problem with their parents or, or, you know, anything along those lines. And, you know, I'll just ask them, you know, what do you do when you have a problem with your head coach? And, you know, they kind of usually take them back a step and they're like, well, you know, I, you know, I usually just, you know, try to, you know, get my point across and then I hear them. And then I, we usually, you know, wipe it off and we're good from there. And I ask them why. And they're like, well, you know, because it's my coach. And what I'm getting at is, is you're responsive to people that you have respect for or that have single determination of your outcome moving forward. Right. And that's usually how it is. Like we either genuinely care about somebody or somebody has something that we need. So we become complicit from there. So I think just looking at it from that lens of like, okay, what do I take important? What do I feel is, you know, somebody who I respect and, and, you know, who do I feel complicit to? And then what are those traits? What are those intangibles? Well, it's, you know, being receptive, it's being an active listener. It's following through when you say you're going to do something. And if you take those isolated traits and you apply them to your friendships, your relationships, your marriage, your parents, all of a sudden it's, it's a totally different context, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, going again, and this is uh, this is another question I'm going to throw at you as a little bit of a curveball. But do you think personally you could have got to where you got in a different way or in a um, a more open way to bring in other people with you or not? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, I it, I kind of became a vastly different person by the time I was 25, six, seven to now. Uh, than I was before 23. You know, I, I just look at things differently. I have a different type of demeanor about myself and I'm interested and concentrated on different things. For me, my problem was becoming over, overly reliant on external things, right? On having, uh, you know, a girlfriend or on having friends present or always having an activity to do or something to do. Um, and it became toxic for me, man. It really did. Uh, so I think for me, the, the first step and, you know, probably the most important step ultimately was you need to figure out who you're not before you figure out who you are. Right. And it didn't take long for me to say, like, I don't want to hang out at a bar every Friday, every Saturday. I don't need to have somebody with me at all times. Um, you know, I don't need to make an impression every time I talk to somebody. Um, and so it allowed me to, I guess, in a way, become much more comfortable in my own skin and it just became, you know, hey, this is who I am. Here it is. This is what I'm about. And I'm not going to change a lot about myself, regardless of what the situation is or who it is. You know, and that's actually kind of one of the first things I told my wife, like, you know, hey, I do this, this and this, this is the way I do this. Take it or leave it, you know, and she's just been I mean, she's been as awesome as could be the whole ride through. But, yeah, uh, you really need to focus on who you're not before you focus on who you are. Um, and that'll help to at least provide some clarity for the next step. I love that. Our, uh, our head football coach here, that's the first thing he brings up in the recruiting list, uh, recruiting talks is he brings up, this is who I'm not as a head coach. This is who I am. And he's like, I'm not patient. I'm not these things, but I, I, I have this skill set, but I'm not this. And his whole mindset behind that is 
I only have enough energy and time to be one person. I, I can't continue to spread myself out and, and still push forward and be successful. So I think that's awesome. And then another thing that it does for you is it starts to bring people into your life that are really going to be about who you are. 100%. I think, I think that's where a lot of people struggle is they want to bring a lot of people into their life, but it, it's, it's, they're this person with this person, they're this person, this face with a different group of people. And then it's not really pushing them forward and who they actually want to become. For sure. And you know, the easiest way to demonstrate that is you look at relationships, right? And especially like that 18 to 25 range. And, you know, you'll see guys that, that'll, you know, be dating girls and they'll, they'll say things like, you know, oh my man, I, she's so out of my league. I did great on this one and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, when you think about that kind of a mindset, you're, you're placing inferiority on yourself, right? And so what you're doing is you're going to change all of the idiosyncrasies and the little things about you to try to meet what you think somebody else wants you to be. And that's never the case, right? It's, you know, what attracted that person to you to begin with? Well, exactly who you are and what you're about. So when you establish something, whether it's a relationship, friendship, marriage, or a new, uh, new position professionally, right? Whatever you did, whoever you were is what got you to that opportunity. So why change it to try to meet what you think somebody else wants? You need to fully invest in who you are and just fully be who you are. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> this is, uh, the, the start of this podcast has probably been the most, uh, the most I've geeked out about this mindset stuff and somebody that has really shared a lot of the views that I share. I feel like if I, I'm going to transition to more of the sports performance stuff, but I feel like we could be here a couple hours just talking about this mindset stuff. So making the transition now to more of the sports performance realm. Yeah. These are some, things that I've really focused on with my clientele and seen a lot of great results with, but I think are still up and coming and new to the strength conditioning field and especially the general population. The first time that I bring up the importance of a foot, the importance of the ankle complex, the oblique slings, or how really important the hips are. A lot of people's minds are kind of blown. They're like, wow, I didn't know. I thought I was about my biceps and curling and my arms and how big they were. So let's start with oblique slings. Can you talk about kind of a little bit what they are and the importance of training an athlete in this way? For sure. Yeah. So the slings, we're looking at anterior, posterior, and lateral. The anterior sling, we're mostly looking at uh, one side serratus and then contralaterally the adductors. And then for the posterior, we're looking at lat plus contralateral glute. And then for the oblique or the spiral chain, we're kind of just thinking down one side unilaterally of the body. Uh, fascia is a really, really interesting uh, tissue or concept, whatever you want to call it now, um, that I think is severely under underutilized and, and underappreciated. Uh, I went to a, a professor of mine after I graduated and just candidly asked him, like, you know, hey, how come we didn't study anything fascia related in the 15 years that I was in school here? And he just kind of candidly responded to me, well, because we can't we can't dissect it in tissue. We can't do uh, fascia dissection, uh, with the cadavers. And so because you can't look at fascia in a clinical sense yet, they can't validate it or confirm it enough to put it into lecture-based material, which to me is silly, but nevertheless, um, to, uh, to my knowledge, fascia has the tensile strength of titanium per square inch or per square centimeter, 
but also has the pliability of muscle and other tissues that we see in the body. So for me, that was really what kind of sparked it. And I was like, okay, so we have to have contribution from fascia to produce motion. It, I don't care what any textbook says. I don't care if we're not able to study it yet. If it has that kind of strength and that kind of pliability, it is absolutely a component in force production and force management. So I took it and ran with it from that. But, um, you know, that led me right into anatomy trains. And uh, if if you haven't read anatomy trains yet, it is uh, as close to a strength and conditioning Bible as I can think of. Um, just a phenomenal book uh, from Thomas Meyer. And that really put things into perspective for me on how to go about training it. Yeah. The anatomy trans book, like, uh, like you mentioned is I, it's one of the number one strength conditioning books that I recommend now of trying to get out of the mindset of separate muscles and separate pieces. I, I talk about like training the lines and trying to create that connection through the body. Cause that's what you see in sports. That's what you see in everyday life. And, uh, what I've noticed with a lot of my athletes and general population people is they, they, they want to focus specifically on feeling something or they want to focus specifically on one muscle. And to me, I recently, this has been one of my bigger switches in coaching is, is that really what we want to do is we, do we really want to focus on squeezing that muscle or do we want to focus on the connection and the train and the movement of that pattern? Yeah. What, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's right on cue, but, uh, you know, what I've always wondered about was, uh, you know, just taking a, uh, for example, a guy who you have a empty barbell, you know, for a back squat and they go down for their squat and it looks so uncomfortable and disconnected and slow. And then you put 135 or 225 on, and then all of a sudden they're boom, down, up, down, up, no problem. And sure. A part of that is just the general warm up aspect of it. But I, I, I really think that there's something more to it and I can only put my finger on fascia. And I think that it kind of uh, coincides with like that muscle slack theory, right? Where, you know, some people just happen to have, um, you know, more laxity or more slack in their muscles or their fascia at rest, and they require external tension to be able to create movement. And that was another one that was really big for me too, because I was like, okay, I've seen a guy back squat 405 perfect reps, you know, for sets of five. And then we get over here for, you know, an accessory exercise like a single arm band split squat with a pow off hold. And they look like they're standing on a bridge in an earthquake. Right. Yeah. And it just really, it, it almost bothered me. Like, why is that? Why can they squat that much weight? But then I take them to this basic exercise with minimal tension and it's absolutely exhausting. It completely defeats them. And again, I point to fashion, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we can train muscles, but we've got a really, really good idea on how to train muscles even tendons and ligaments and soft structures. But I think that there's something more to it. And another example that, that paints the picture perfectly is you look at combine numbers for NFL athletes, right? And a lot of these guys put up very marginal, mediocre type combine numbers, but then you see them on the field and they just absolutely, they're powerhouse. They, they're blowing through dudes. They're running right past people. So I just think that the conventional strength application is a little short-sighted. I think there's something more to it. For sure. So, uh, what are some of the ways that you go about training this? One thing that I want to really show the public for the first time or just talk about is some of the offset training stuff that you do. And then other techniques I use to train the fascial lines. Absolutely. So predominantly I'm going to work this in, in my warmups and in my movement prep sections, um, with all of like the, uh, you know, the light band stuff and some of the positional body weight work, uh, that's emphasizing the slings or the, the offset stuff. And then with 
uh, this is with everybody. Sorry, let me preface that. This is with everybody. Warm up movement prep. We're going to do something that's going to include the slings or is going to include that offset pattern. Um, and then with the uh, accessory work, we're going to again sample a couple of things here and there that are you know predominantly focused on the fascia and the uh, and the slings. With people that have more specificity, uh, let me give you two examples here. Um, okay, here's an easy example. Uh, so I had a guy who was a, uh, a cancer survivor and he had some kind of really, really strange, like thoracic wall cancer that was uh, brutal. But uh, they ended up having to crack his sternum, fracture his sternum to cut his lat, his pec, some of his serratus, 30 percent of his one of his diaphragm uh, and uh, his entire rectus sheet. Right. To get to where they needed to go. And so when he had gotten to me, his belly button had been shifted over to above his ASIS. I mean, exactly over top of his hip crest. And this was a huge momentum builder for me. But it was the one it was the point that I had gotten to where I was like, OK, we're really going to see what this sling stuff is about. So for four weeks, we emphasized explicitly unilateral movement. So we did zero bilateral movement. Um, a lot of, you know, the conventional stuff, RDL, split squat, overhead press, all that stuff. But then we took a tremendous amount of emphasis on doing things like a, you know, bear crawl with an offset band or a plank walk with an offset band, um, you know, doing overhead split squats with a single arm offset band, um, and just really hammering that, that shoulder to, to hip pattern and just kind of see what happens. And, uh, man, I'll tell you what. Yeah, I didn't, we didn't get all the way back to his midline, but it brought that thing way back in, uh, almost back to the midline, uh, I guess, you know, maybe a couple of inches. And, uh, that was when I was thoroughly convinced, like, okay, there is something to this. And I really just took it and ran from there. That's That's awesome. I, uh, I geek out about a lot of this stuff because of the one, the, the results that we're seeing so far. And this is, this is where I want, I really would like the, um, I, we were, I have a, researcher at St. Thomas at the college that I work at that is really into strength conditioning. And I'm trying to get to him to run a study on a little bit of the, the fascial trains and these type of things, but I'm really excited to see if they're able to actually do it. But in the meantime, and this is where, where I struggle is, I don't think we can always rely upon what the research is telling us right. or not telling us if it's not there, if we're seeing results that are showing benefits to our athletes that right. put money and belief into us to get these results. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Charles Polkwin said it best, right? If I waited for research to confirm everything I'm doing with my athletes, I never would have coached an Olympic athlete. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's, you just, you have to, at some point be able to rely on intuition and logical thinking and being able to implement things that you think or know have evidence, have practical evidence. Um, and, and man, there's so much limitation to a lot of the academic research. So right on cue, I actually, uh, I reached out to a couple of people at ODU and, and some other schools about doing an offset study and about doing a, a vector based study and, uh, got pretty swiftly denied from everybody. And I sat back and thought about it and I was like, ah, well, this whole concept of fascia and offset training and, you know, uh, vector training and whatnot kind of takes a shit on Newtonian physics. So it's going to be difficult to get a biomechanist to jump on board with that study. If we're, <laughs> if we're going to come at Newtonian physics, you know? Yeah. And it's going to force them to all all buy new textbooks too. So (laughs) I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) Gotcha. So 
Uh, I want to transition a little bit to a, a little fetish of mine and go to the feet. And we have a little, uh, we have a little thing rolling. Uh, I keep calling it ankle porn, but just talking about the importance of the foot and the, the ankle complex. And I think it ties into the slings and the connection of the fascia throughout the entire body. But can you talk about what you see the importance of the foot? Uh, you talk a little bit of a barefoot training and some of the things that listeners could be doing to help them. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I definitely can't speak on anything about the foot without giving, uh, credit to my, my man, Vern, uh, Vernon Griffith, my, uh, the director of Virginia Eye performance. Um, he was the one that, that really, uh, put this into perspective for me, uh, you know, kind of over the last two years or so, but, uh, it's literally the base of everything, right? So if you, um, if you ever work with an athlete who has an acute injury at the ankle or the foot or the Achilles tendon, you'll immediately see there's nothing that compromises training more than a foot injury. Yeah. You can't do anything standing, right? You have to, you have to modify everything to where that foot is not implicated. Um, and it gets really challenging, you know, and I, I work with some challenging cases, but man, uh, the Achilles and the ankle injuries and the foot injuries are by far the most confounding. Um, to follow up with that, uh, you know, back to our book anatomy trains, there's a beautiful image and it's like one of the first pictures that they have in there in the first chapter of the fascia line that runs from the big toe all the way to the tongue. That's one piece of tissue from your toe to your tongue. Um, which, you know, again, for me, at least, you know, you like to nerd out. I like to nerd out too, man. Like that was a, a wild picture to come across that really, really made an impression on me. Um, so anyhow, you know, I think that the having that in the in the forefront of okay, literally everything is connected and the foot is the base. It's the primary contact point from the ground to the rest of the body. It has to have tremendous ramification. And so what I'll do with this is um, you know, like for my assessment, I'll take a look at, you know, the the obvious things, the basic things, you know, overpronation, oversupination. I don't put too much emphasis into the high arch versus flat arch, because I think that there's a lot more individuality to that than people give credence to. But, um, you know, if you ever you work with sprinters and you try to work on fixing somebody's flat arch, uh, you're not going to be a strength coach for very long. So, you know, looking at more of the structure of the foot and less, less of the arch, I think is, uh, really what you want to hone in on. So I'll look at the medial drop on the ankle you know, in favor of that flat arch, because if they have a flat arch that could be beneficial, but if that medial uh, malleolus is dipped in or is, is pulled medially, that's creating some kind of torque on the knee or the lower leg, then we might have an issue. So looking at those for my assessment points, uh, and also too, you, we want to look at, you know, ability for big toe extension and flexion as well. Um, Cause that has its ramifications. Uh, just getting an idea of where they are, when they see us first. Right. And then how do we need to tweak or modify going forward uh, to try to optimize that foot pattern? So I'll do probably at least 50, if not sometimes 75% of my training with my guys and girls uh, with no shoes, I will never have anybody warm up with shoes. I think that there's a tremendous amount of value in just that kinetic feedback and that proprioceptive feedback of having, you know, barefoot contact on the ground or the turf um, and just kind of getting things to spark and wake up a little bit. Um, and then, you know, from there, we'll just try to incorporate as much as we can, or as much as we need to, I should say, um, with getting the lower leg and the foot to be pillars and to be stable and to be able to tolerate forces from a variety of different planes. 
For sure. This is uh, one thing I want to go back to is you talk about when the foot is injured, there's a lot of things that you have to change. One thing I really see, and I think this is going to be coming up and I don't think it's taken seriously enough is a, a minor ankle sprain. And a lot of, especially football and basketball guys are coming back from these ankle sprains very quickly because they're able to run on it. But what I have been seeing is the compensation that that causes down the road is crazy because it's not taken care of. It's just taped up and then thrown out there to, Hey, you can, you can walk on it. You can go, which I get as part of the game, but being able to get that ankle back to a point to where it's functioning uh, yeah. when you sprain it, it's, it's, it's not. And we're just trying to hide that by taping it up and hopefully they're able to stand. But that's where you see a lot of ankle sprains turn into knee injuries and it, it transitions from there. You know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, man, I, I think, uh, you know, you really hit the nail on the head with, uh, you know, it's the nature of the beast. Right. And, and that's something that, uh, in my world is extremely prevalent because, uh, it, you know, we don't, we don't need to look far to see what our military personnel is subjected to and some of the things that, you know, that they, they have to go through and, and battle through. But, um, one of them is basically masking pain and injury, right? Like you, you are literally suppressed or kind of pushed aside or ostracized if you complain about being hurt or this isn't right or that's not right. So with my population, it's getting them to understand that, hey, we're not removing you or, or regressing you from something because you're not capable or good enough. This is the one time in your life where we don't want to inflict discomfort or pain or push through, right? We want to figure out what the problem is and then apply the solution. You know. So getting them to understand that like, yeah, hey, you know, only favoring your left foot every time you step and trying to keep no weight on the right foot as you're walking through your gait cycle is not good. And it's, yeah. you know, not something that you have to do. What you have to do is take the time to fix the problem and then get back into the world, you know? Um, so we, with uh, the uh, ankle sprains and with what I see also a lot is plantar fasciitis, um, you know, these, these people, these athletes, these, these guys and girls are all almost convinced that like, because it's not a torn ACL ruptured Achilles or a slap tear that they need to suck it up and kind of get through it. And what I've seen happen a lot of the times is plantar fasciitis, um, that goes untreated or that isn't, isn't treated accordingly, um, will develop into shin splints and then shin splints that go untreated or aren't treated accordingly becomes compartment syndrome. So plantar fasciitis, mild problem, you know, reasonably easy solution to, to, to apply. Uh, but then when you get to compartment syndrome, I mean, that can shut it down for a year, you know? Um, so it's really just trying to, you know, educate them on understanding that, Hey, the foot is an extremely important part of your body. And, you know, things like turf toe, plantar fasciitis, ankle sprains, like these are as serious of injuries as anywhere else. And they need to be addressed accordingly. So, uh, turf toe selfishly, I want to dive in a little bit. If you have anything here, we have a lot of, a lot of big guys struggle with turf toe on the football team. Uh, we've been doing a lot of toe manipulation this past year that they have said has helped. Have you done anything else for turf toe to try and fix that issue or just try to prevent it? Um, dorsiflexion. Yeah. Okay. Dorsiflexion under load. And also too, just, I, this is kind of a, a general sweep here, but I do a ton of work out of the split position and I do it because of exactly that. 
being able to get that big toe extension under load in a natural pattern. Um, and for, you know, especially for athletes that replicates that same kind of sprinting action, uh, I think is, is, is paramount, man. Um, I don't see too, too many, uh, active cases of turf toe, but we've had a couple and I will have a little bit of extra time on just some manual therapy down there and trying to get that toe to glide as it should. Um, and getting, uh, a little bit better with, um, active, uh, contact in a standing position, especially a single leg position. Cause I think a part of the issues both with turf toe and with plantar fasciitis is, is people just fundamentally don't understand how to get and create that force or contact between the ground. So getting them into that toe splay and covering surface and then being able to create active contraction or active gripping with all of the toes will help that foot to be stabilized. And it won't allow that big toe to overwork by itself. I think that's a part of the issue is that the, the foot itself is not working collectively. So one part of it gets overworked. Right. Um, so I think that's my best way of going about preventative action. Um, and again, in the moment, that's a really, really touch and go one, as I'm sure you're well aware of where, man, if that, if that turf toe gets fired up, it, it, there's not a lot you can do without irritating it, you know? So it's yeah. kind of a situation on that one. Oh, that's a lot of good stuff. I love that. So let's transition a little bit up the body now. And you just released this big ebook on the hips. It's like 74 pages, uh, yeah. really in depth. It's an awesome thing. I, I encourage, and I'll, I'll have it in the show notes, but I encourage any of the listeners to download it, but breaking down all of the hips and how to really unlock them and use them in the correct ways. And one of the things that I love that you mentioned is the, the weakness versus tightness, but can you dive in a little bit about the hips and some of your biggest takeaways from it? Sure, man. Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, the, the reason I actually ended up putting that together was, uh, you know, my dad, who's an advent, uh, you know, exercise enthusiast or whatever you want to call it. Uh, he, he hit me up back in like October and was like, Hey man, I've had this adductor thing going on for like six months now. It just won't go away. And it's like, man, this is literally what I do for a living. Like I take people who are injured and help them to be less injured. So why my dad is having problems for over a year is a problem with me. So put together a little program for him and sent it down there. And then I was looking at it. I was like, you know what? this is a great idea. Let's run with this. So it, that was actually the catalyst for me to, uh, initiate all of that. And, um, and again, it really just kind of hit me where I was like, this is literally what I'm doing on an everyday basis. I am working on people's hips because they don't have any sort of motor control. They don't have any sort of movement pliability. They don't have isolated strength and so forth. And I was like, you know, there's a good chance that this is something that's a common problem for a lot of people. So uh, with that, um, I think the, uh, most important thing with the hips is understanding that they're quite literally the transfer station of the body, right? So irrespective of population, irrespective of, you know, what type of athlete you work with or what level they are, kinetic force transfer is kinetic force transfer. And that the hips are the transfer station from lower to upper extremity. So we spend so much time on squatting, deadlifting, bench pressing, cleans, jerks, lunges, all these common exercises and, and um, movements that are, that are all great. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but we don't ever pay any particular attention to the more refined movements of the hip, you know, and I can use two easy examples here, right? First one is flexion. Where's your hip flexion coming from? You know, how much are you getting from the psoas? How much are you getting from the rectus? the gracilis, how much are you getting from some of these smaller structures? Um, a lot of the times, you know, and again, take, you know, athletes that have monster squat numbers that are super powerful and you put them, put a mini band around their feet and have them do a single leg stork or hip flexion and they're sweating bullets, man. Like it is, it is truly taxing for them. Um, 
you know, so the, the, the whole point or premise behind it is getting the smaller isolated structures up to speed so that they can contribute to the bigger movers on your bigger lifts. The second easy example is frontal play, right? I, I don't want to be overly generalized or overzealous in saying this, but I would say that about three fourths of the athletes that I see about 75% have absolutely no frontal plane strength at all. Right. And we always start, you know, one of the exercises where we start with is those mini band sidewalks, those sidesteps, and those will absolutely tear people up, you know? So again, thinking about the same premises, those smaller lateral hip muscles, the adductors, the glute meat, glute min, all of those smaller frontal plane muscles, all of those contribute to the quads, the hamstrings, the psoas, and they improve sagittal plane action. So I think that we have a great, we're at a great point in strength and conditioning and performance training where, you know, Instagram, Twitter, all these things are, are phenomenal. And we're seeing all these great things being shared, but we have to understand that it goes beyond a deadlift and a push press, you know, and we have to put some importance on some of these things that may look a little goofy or abstract, but they matter and they make a difference. And it's another one that I've just seen so much anecdotal evidence for that I really can't be convinced otherwise. Yeah. I think that goes back to our talk about how the body is all- it's all connected. And if you have a, if you have a weak point in there, this is another point that I love talking about is, is the body's going to survive. Like that's its goal. So it'll move. It'll keep doing these things. And maybe it's not the optimal way. Maybe it's not the best firing pattern, but it'll do it until it breaks Yeah, until it breaks or until your performance drops until you have these things. And it's because you have a weak link in the system. You have that little break. And, it, but that's, that's where you see a lot of like, Oh, I deadlift and I, I deadlift a ton of weight and I never do these things. And I, I have all these, but uh, you don't know, like eventually that, that, that spot is going to get exposed. And one thing that I would really like to dive into as well is, is the, the QL glute and hamstring firing patterns and kind of the importance of those three. Yeah. So that was something I was introduced to introduced to through, uh, Cal Dietz, yeah. uh, now is at Texas university. Um, but he was really big on that a few years back with his book. And, uh, I was at a workshop with him. And so I got a lot of this stuff in person. So it really, really registered for me, but that, that glute hamstring contralateral QL firing pattern is, uh, again, something else that is just disrupted or, or, uh, or I guess just generally weak in a lot of people that I'm assessing. And what we see is, is, uh, the glutes will not fire. Not only will they not fire first, but they really won't fire at all. And so we'll see guys that will crank from their hamstring to, to get into hip extension and then use opposite QL or contralateral QL to stabilize. And so what that's doing is, is that's creating almost like a tonic muscle in the hamstring because it's being overworked and overfired and then desensitizing that glute because it's not required to do what it's supposed to do. So when you get problems at the hamstring uh, that are based on overfiring, we're going to continue to see disruption at the pelvis, right? It's going to create or, or, or exacerbate you know, some kind of either posterior or anterior pelvic drop. And then now we have a functional problem, right? So one isolated thing, left glute not firing first, over firing at the hamstring and over firing at the, at the QL is now going to change the structure of the pelvis. So I don't need to know anything about anything else. It's going to create ramifications elsewhere. So the other one that we'll see a lot is uh, the QL overfiring and contributing too much into extension. And so that creates, you know, a hyperdeveloped QL, which then puts chronic strain on the lumbar, lumbar spine because the QL has four independent attachments on the lumbar. 
And now all of a sudden we have chronic nonspecific low back pain, right? And so it just, again, it's another one where, you know, it's this very obtuse, tiny little muscle in the low back that people don't think about or don't think can have ramifications. But this is a muscle that attaches to the hip, the spine, and the rib cage. So you can't tell me that that's not going to cause problems if it's not trained appropriately or accordingly, you know? Yeah. And like you said, it, it's that smaller muscle and you put it, you put it in a really nice way in the ebook, but this small muscle, if we're not firing the correct way or activated the right way is taking the load of what the big muscles are supposed to yeah. do. Yeah. And then that will cause problems for the erectors for trunk extension, right. Or uh, just in general for, for lumbar stabilization. And it can also cause problems pulling posteriorly on the rib cage. And so then that's when we'll see that like scissor posture, right? Where people's rib cages on the front side is flared up and the hips are insignificant or egregious pelvic tilt. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't think, oh man, that's got to be something from the QL. QL has got to be, you know, off or anything like that, right? Because we're, we're so visually oriented. But, you know, I've just seen way too much from getting the QL right, getting it toned down and, and not contribute excessively in extension. And then getting rid of that kind of uh, excessive pull on the spine or the ribs. And then all of a sudden, you know, anterior core strength is now improved and we're out of a lordotic pattern and we can stabilize unilaterally during a gait or, or a sprint cycle. Right. Um, and I, I don't mean to make it sound like this is, you know, snake oil, like you, you do a couple QL exercises and all of a sudden you're a stud athlete. But for a lot of people, it is a culprit and it is something that I would, would suggest should be assessed in, in most athletes. For sure. Yeah. So la la last part of the hips here, we, there's a, there's a ton of listeners right now that probably feel like they have tight hips or, or a tight lower back. What are some quick takeaways or things that they can do today or stop doing to hopefully improve these? Yeah. Uh, again, I don't, I don't want to be overly generalized here, but I would be willing to bet that your hips aren't tight. They're weak. And if there's something that you should probably stop doing, it's stretching excessively. Um, I'll use the hamstrings as the example on this. Um, the most common hamstring exercises that we see are all eccentric lengthening, RDLs, hinges, good mornings. Um, and a lot of, for a lot of people, that's actually feeding a bad pattern, right? If we continue to eccentrically lengthen the hamstrings for somebody who has anterior pelvic tilt, then we're feeding that problem, right? So then we think about that in the context of stretching. If I'm just, man, my hamstrings are so tight, I, I can't get my hamstrings to loosen up. and you know, you're just getting after like 15, 20 minutes of, of, you know, hamstring stretches a day. Again, you are feeding your problem. So for the hamstrings, I think we need to focus more on flexion based exercises and for a lot of people than lengthening. And then on the front side, you know, tight. So as is one of the biggest buzzwords in, in the country or in the world right now for strength training. Um, and it's another one where, you know, is it really tight? Is that the problem that we're dealing with? Not to split hairs on that, but I would beg to differ and argue that it's probably a weakness. So if we continue to stretch a muscle that needs to be strengthened, then again, we're going to continue to create length where we need contractility. And even if we have people who genuinely do need to stretch out, right, that are genuinely tight, I would still say that because you're tight, there's a disruption in the uh, cross bridges, right? There's a disruption in the resting tone of the muscle, whether it's overly tight or it's overly lengthened, we have a disruption 
in the resting tone. So we need to work some capacity of strength as we do stretch, irrespective of what the situation is. So don't forget about your strength work and make sure that we are isolating each of these big hip muscles and strengthening them independently before we get to collective work. I love that. Last part in this, uh, this coaching segment, I want, I want to talk about the importance of communication that you have with your athletes, uh, in the, we, we had a strength conference yesterday at St. Thomas that we hosted and, uh, it was really cool. The, the last presenter took all the points that we talked about all day. We talked about visualization. We talked about meditation. We talked about nutrition and every single person in there was talking about all this information, but a lot of times the athletes don't follow through. A lot of times this doesn't happen. And he was saying, the biggest reason for that is because you haven't got them to buy in through communication. You haven't communicated why this is so important for them to actually do it. They have the knowledge, but they're still not doing it. So there's something else missing there. So can you dive into the communication and how really important that is with your athletes and how you go about it? Yeah. So it's a little bit different for me. So I'm not working with anybody who's under 28, maybe. Um, yeah, about 28. Uh, so my entire population is adults, which definitely changes the game in a lot of different ways. Um, but then from there, also them being, uh, you know, in the, in, in the military, right. Uh, my biggest challenge early on was brevity, clarity, and confidence, right. I have a tendency to sometimes get long winded with things because I want to be thorough. Well, with this population, that attention span is down inside of 10 seconds, right? Because everything in their world is go, 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 this, 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 they abbreviate everything. And it's just quick, direct communication. So that was the first adjustment for me was, okay, we have a very limited amount of time to coach them through this RDL. So figure out your three touch points for them and use those three touch points, explain them to them first. And then from there, just the one word, right? So, you know, an easy example there would be uh, somebody who's rounding on the shoulders during an RDL after the set, I'll pull them aside and say, Hey man, you know, do you feel that when you're getting down into the bottom levels or bottom uh, ranges of motion of this, this RDL, do you feel your shoulders kind of starting to pull forward? And they'll be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I did notice that. Okay. So I'll put them in the position manually and then I'll say down and back. And then the cue from there forward is just down and back, nothing more, nothing less. So the brevity for them was a big part of it. In addition to that, it's establishing trust, right? And this is a, a very cliche point, but again, for me, uh, was a little bit amplified when we started working with this population because, uh, they, they're, they're a confident bunch and they've also been exposed to a lot of different things. So, you know, for instance, coming to see me is not the first time that they've gone to a, uh, an independent strength coach to work on a specific thing or, you know, being in a, in a, in a program. So, um, I need to be able to a demonstrate that I know what the hell I'm talking about and B being able to demonstrate to them that, Hey, this is for you. We are doing everything for you. What you want to get out of this is what we're going to focus on. Everything that you're telling me from injury history to training preferences to this, to that, I promise we're going to keep that in mind and I'm going to, I'm going to abide by it. And then we're going to, you know, make sure we communicate on everything from there. So I think what they really appreciate is the individuality of it because everything in the military is always done before the team for the betterment of the team and for the betterment of the, of the troop and so forth. And so when they get in with me, it's almost like, uh, they're kind of caught off guard, like, Oh man, like this really is just 
my program. So, um, that was a big one too, you know, and I think, uh, I'm not somebody who's, uh, overly excited or enthusiastic, I guess, you know, I kind of keep a little bit more of a serious personal demeanor to myself, but I'm going to make it very clear to them that, you know, they can trust my, my judgment. They can trust my professional input and that they're going to be in good hands while they're with me. Yeah. So I want to dive in just a little bit of the, the, the confidence of you have these people that are a lot of times older, they, they have a ton of confidence themselves yeah. and they're, they're from the military. They've, they've gone through all this intense training and things in their lives. And then they have to come to you. What is the, how do you display the confidence and ability to be like, not be intimidated by these people coming in? Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of just, um, man, I don't know how to really say this one. Uh, I just don't really give an opportunity for bullshit. Okay. You know? Um, and I, and let me be very clear in four years, I have never had a single athlete get combative, tell me no, or have any kind of differences of opinion, nothing at all, which is actually kind of surprising. But, um, I think, uh, something that I've really tried to, you know, live by for a coaching mindset is, uh, be the thermostat, not the thermometer. Right. Um, I'm going to be the one that's going to set the temperature of the session and whether I'm having a great day or a shit day or whether I'm stressed or I'm feeling awesome, it doesn't matter. Right. Like it is their hour. So I need to be able to compartmentalize or suppress that as best I can put it to the side. And I need to let them know, you know, that we are dialed in for this hour. Um, and you know, I just always try to meet them, you know? So if it's, uh, let's say it's somebody who's type a very analytical and they want to know the thorough details behind my thought process, all to tell them, I will, I will pull them, you know, aside after a set and I'll say, Hey, this is exactly why we're doing this. This is exactly why we're doing this. And I think that for them, you know, for that population of people, um, it's almost reassuring or comforting for them to have that validation of, Oh, okay. So we weren't just putting bands on this just for the sake of doing it. Right. Like there's meaning behind it. And then for the other ones that want to be a little bit more goofy and relaxed and bullshit throughout the session and whatnot, you know, I need to kind of morph myself into that type of mindset to where I'm not, you know, Hey man, did you feel your left knee on this one? And this, they don't want that. Right. So I'm still setting the tone for the session, but I'm going to meet their energy and bring myself down a little bit and, you know, be okay with a little bit more conversation in between sets. And, you know, maybe we're not as, as worried about how much, how many degrees of overhead flexion we can regain. We're just kind of getting some workouts in, you know? So I think that's an important part of it is understanding who you're working with and being able to dial in on what it is that they want. I love that point. I think that's a lot of sports coaches struggle with that difference in opinion. They really want the the person that's always go, 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 go. And when they see something that's not that they get the opinion of that person's lazy or that person is yeah. this. Um, to me, it's the person just, it, they react differently to things. And as a coach, it's our job, not their job to change who they are. It's our job to, again, set that tone and communicate with them to get the work done because that's how they function. They're still doing their job on the field. They're still getting it done. And we just got to find a way to work with them. Yeah, absolutely. One of the best examples I've seen of that recently was that video. And I wish I knew the coach who, who it was, but um, that coach who was uh, working with the volleyball team and they were doing their warm up before the, before the game. I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, he literally has this like collegiate volleyball team in the, on the floor with the crowd and, you know, 10 minutes to tip off going through dances, he's dancing and the team is, is mimicking whatever dance moves he's doing. 
And it's this kind of like eclectic and almost goofy, you know, routine. And people got so bent out of shape about that. And they're like, oh, well, that's not, you know, a warm up and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why? You know, it, this is a, a collegiate female volleyball team. And this guy is in the middle of the floor right before a game doing all these different dance moves. And they're, those girls are so dialed into what he's doing. And they are so invested in what he has for them that that is as good of a warm up as you're going to get, not only physically, but psychologically being in such unity and synchronicity is it was almost like poetic. Um, but like, that's what I'm talking about. You know, if you have a population of a female collegiate volleyball team, your approach is going to be different than if you have a D one football team, or if you have an operator or, or, or a geriatric patient, your approach is going to be different. You're not compromising your beliefs or who you are or what you're about by molding yourself to an environment. You're just optimizing your time with them. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm going to have to check out that video. I haven't seen it before, but that's that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Sweet. So let's transition to a rapid fire round then. This yeah. is uh, these are these are the set questions of the podcast that we roll through. Your answers don't have to be super short, but my questions are just going to be shorter here. So let's start with favorite books. What are some books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of? So training related uh, anatomy trains, Thomas Meyer, uh, fascia training, Bill Parisi. Uh, that is a phenomenal book and it's a really easy and uh, fun read. Actually, uh, I can't recommend that one highly enough. Um, and then I would say triphasic training would probably be my number three, uh, strength book, um, for non-training related, uh, my favorite book of all time, no doubt about it is outliers, uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Um, and then, uh, in addition to that power of habit is a really good one. Um, that one taught me a lot about principle, whereas outliers taught me more about being ambitious. This one kind of taught me about principle. Um, and then, uh, something that I'm actually going back through now is, uh, the art of nonconformity. Um, and if you, uh, if you, if you read that one, then, uh, you understand where this is coming from, but I've reached a point, uh, here recently where I needed to be reminded of it's okay to go off the beaten path a little bit and, and to, uh, kind of create your own, your own purpose. So I'd say those are my top three. My, my favorite thing about this question is it's almost always people geek out more about the non-training books than yeah. the training books themselves. And this is something that I've talked to a, a bunch with the guest is the training books kind of give you just that foundation of knowledge, but every single other book that gives you that different view on the world is how you're going to use that knowledge in, in your training, in your coaching, in your life, in your business. hundred percent. So let's transition to our next question. Who is a guest that you think we should have on somebody that really could give the viewer uh, listeners a lot of value. All right, man, I got two for you. Um, one of them is not going to be happy. I, I mentioned them, but, uh, first, uh, uh, my man, Tim Kelly, uh, one of our coaches at BHP. Um, I guess I can't say this without being somewhat biased, but, uh, Tim is a former baseball player at, uh, Virginia tech and, uh, UMBC and came on with us about three years ago. Uh, and he has developed this really impressive uh, career working with uh, like spine population and, and uh, paralysis and uh, neurological disorders and 
uh, MS and things like that. And, uh, you know, man is, is he just has some really cool stuff that he has going. And I don't, I don't want to speak too much on his behalf, but, um, I would definitely encourage you to, to, uh, reach out to him. And then is he, uh, is he on the, sorry, is he on the Instagram? Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, actually, sweet. I'll, I'll check him out. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, uh, my buddy, Jeremy Aspa, uh, he is the head athletic trainer at Hampton university. Um, and, uh, Jeremy is quite possibly the most intelligent person I've ever spoken to with regard to strength and conditioning and rehabilitative training. I mean, that guy's like borderline savant level. Um, so he may not be happy that I mentioned it, but, uh, yeah, I'd reach out to him too, man. (laughs) For sure. All right. So what's next for you? You, you, you started up, you talked about at the beginning, uh, starting up the new business, but what, what's your next step and what's kind of your vision going forward? Uh, man. So again, I don't mean to sound cliche, but my next step is tomorrow. Um, you know, I I'm really, really concentrated on saturating every single day for what it's worth right now. And, uh, you know, I think if I have, uh, well, I have a ton of faults, but if I could pick out probably my number one, it's, uh, you know, maybe being a little bit too serious sometimes and taking myself a little too seriously, but, uh, Again, you know, circling back to uh, trying to do in 10 years what it takes most 25, uh, I'm coming into year eight on that. So it's uh, it's almost like the final push for me. And, uh, you know, my wife and I are uh, we don't have any kids yet, but, um, you know, we're getting ready to get into that that part of life, too. So I know that my time is going to be compromised. I know that, you know, I'm not going to have as much freedom and, and ability to do whatever I want. So I'm really trying to drive the nail home now on uh, a lot of these things and, and getting some things stood up for myself. but. Uh, making the most of each day is definitely a big focal point. And then from there, you know, I'm going to start trying to work my way towards the NFL and, uh, you know, start making that round. Uh, I think my overall goal, my overall plan is uh, 30 and 30. So from 20 to 50, I want to coach. And then from 50 to 80, I want to teach. Um, and then somewhere sprinkled in there in the late forties, after I get fired from my last NFL team, uh, <laughs> I want to travel the country and, uh, go back and get my PhD and, uh, you know, then, move into the lecturing from there. That's freaking awesome. When you, um, when you're on your deathbed and, and all this stuff is over, all of these goals are accomplished. What do you want your legacy to be? I don't, I don't know that that's for me to define. Uh, I, I, you know, of course I can say all the, the routine things like, uh, you know, leaving things better than I found them and, and, you know, setting my kids up for a very long time and, you know, making my wife happy and things like that. But, uh, I don't know, man, I, I, I feel like, uh, I feel like that's not something for me to really determine. I'm just going to do the best I can with what I can every single day. And, and hopefully it leads somewhere great. Focus on the present. I love it. All right. Last question. Somebody comes to you they're They're, they're in a tough spot in life. Maybe where you were at uh, a couple of years ago and they're in this spot. What is your billboard message for that person to get out of where they're at? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but, uh, something that just really, really helped me, you know, especially being back in that time was that you, you always have more to gain than you have to lose. And, uh, I think that's just really important to latch on to, especially if you're struggling, especially if you're still in your, you know, younger years of coaching. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned it perfectly from the start here, uh, when we got on this, that, uh, people were scared to take chances and they're scared to kind of leave that security net and, um, you know, do things autonomously because, either it's against the grain or, you know, it's, you know, too makes them too vulnerable. And I just think that's bullshit, man, no matter what your surroundings are or where you're at, um, good, bad, or otherwise, 
there's always more to be gained than there is to be lost. And, and you just have to really, really buy into yourself and understand what you're capable of and not be afraid to demonstrate that or execute it. I love that. Well, that that's all the questions that we got. Uh, this, I'm super pumped for this podcast, super pumped for people to hear, especially the first half of it. So thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Absolutely, man. And uh, like I said, you know, uh, any time there's anything I can do to help or, you know, bounce ideas off of or whatnot, man, please let me know. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to get a chance to link up here in person one day. For sure. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood.